Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Uh, it's good to be with you. I feel like it's always, you know, interesting both as the guest speaker and as the one listening to the guest speaker. You just never know what's going to happen. I'm not saying that anything crazy is going to happen, but um, you're really kind of opening yourself up to someone new, maybe a stranger, someone familiar, maybe, to speak into your life, and I appreciate that this morning. There's a story I'm always reminded of um, when it comes to preaching, and it, I think it would, took place maybe 100 years ago. Um, preacher in a small church, um, and every Sunday, he would have a contingent in the congregation. Uh, they were the, the preach, uh, you know, contingent. Every time he would say something, go, preach, preach it, pastor. I don't know if there's anyone here that falls under that. That's okay. Um, what's funny about the story is that um, Sunday after Sunday, he would experience this. You know, they would be affirming him loudly uh, from the back. I think there was one Sunday where he decided he was going to preach on a particular sin. It might have been pride or gossip or something like that. And he waited for the contingent to affirm him. And it was mostly quiet back there, aside from one person who kind of spoke up and said, now you're just meddling. <laughs> and so thanks for letting me meddle in your lives this morning. Uh, we're going to go into Numbers chapter 20. And we're going to do verses 1 to 13. So uh, the, the text should be on the screen. There you go. Um, but I, it'd be really important and helpful for you if you had your physical Bible or Bible app open because we're going to be continually referencing the text. So we're going to start in, in verse 1. Okay, thanks. That's awesome. Um, okay, verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Verse two, now there was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Verse six, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen you rebels, must we bring you water from this rock? 
Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me, enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. I want to highlight three main themes from this text this morning, just to make it really easy for you note takers. Three main themes. Number one, I want to talk about the tragedy of disobedience. The tragedy of disobedience. Welcome to your encouraging Sunday (laughs) sermon. The tragedy of disobedience. Number two, I want to talk about God's blessing. It says one, one, one up there. Come on, Reese. God's blessing, despite our disobedience. And then number three, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the perfect rock, water, and mediator. We're going to pray together one more time. Lord, thank you for this text, this story that uh, gives us so much to wrestle with. Thank you that we can look to the scriptures and find stories, experiences, human beings that we can relate to. Thank you that through this story, we can apply lessons to our lives, we can grow, we can learn, we can be shaped more into your image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I just wanna first do a little bit of contextualization. Where are we in this story? I know that Simon and the teaching team have been walking us through the journey. Israelites, Moses, Aaron, and the whole team wandering from Sinai and Egypt to the promised land in Canaan. And so the book of Numbers uh, documents Israel's journey from Egypt to the promised land as we read it. And so Moses and Aaron, they're leading uh, what it says in scripture is the congregation, the Israelites, through the wilderness, just going through the wilderness all the way to the plains of Moab. And so this journey was hugely important for early readers of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, mainly because it's, it's filled to the brim with imagery that's important for us and purposeful instruction for the Israelites as the years went on. And so in Numbers 20, we find ourselves in a moment of murmuring and infighting again. This is a constant theme with this group, murmuring and infighting. They've arrived at the desert of Zin, staying at Kadesh. So they're getting closer to the promised land. And the issue at hand here that Moses and Aaron as leaders are trying to deal with is that they're thirsty. They don't have any water. So they begin to quarrel with Moses. That's what it says. Moses, who is their God-ordained leader, People are fed up with him. They want Moses out. 
They're fed up with a lack of direction and continual suffering. So this quarreling, it's a verb in Hebrew that actually denotes filing some sort of lawsuit. And so the Israelites, they believe that Moses broke God's law as a leader. And so they're suing him. You can just imagine this uprising, torches, signs. They're saying, Moses, we want you out. You're a terrible leader. They're banding together, protesting. So Israel's argument is that they would have been better off either dead than where they are now or back in Egypt under slavery, brutal slavery, because at least there they had water and they had pomegranates, apparently. That's what they're really looking for. The desert has none of these things. And so we're beginning to see the dynamic here. We've got Moses and Aaron as leaders. We've got the Israelites who are fed up with the leaders. And Moses and Aaron, they are under a ton of pressure to do something about this. And so they respond by coming before the Lord, falling flat on their faces in desperate prayer and intercession. They have nowhere else to go. So they go to the tent of meeting, they seek out the presence of God, and they just fall flat on their faces. And God says, I have, I have something here for you. His instruction is this. He says, get everyone together, speak to this rock that's over there. And once you speak to it, watch water flow from the rock. He also tells Moses to bring along the staff. It's likely a reminder of what God has done for them in the past by splitting the Red Sea and by striking a rock to gather water before. Yet, as we've read in the text, things go very differently. Moses finds himself deeply frustrated and he speaks to the people, strikes the rock, and comes face to face with the bitter consequence of taking matters into his own hands. It's a sad story. You will have noticed as we read the text, there's no happy ending there. It's a tragedy. So I want to reflect on the tragedy of disobedience. So in dramatic literary terms, tragedy can be defined as a play dealing with tragic events and having an unhappy ending, especially one concerning the downfall of the main character. And what we see in this story with Moses, it's a, it's a downfall. Up until this point, Moses is reputable. He's been able to be trusted as a leader, but here we see a downfall. And it stems from an act of disobedience towards God. And so when I say disobedience, how do you feel? What does that word bring up for you? I think collectively I would say that we've developed some sort of allergy to the word disobedience. There's something about it that just doesn't really sit right with us. And I would, I would say that it's the way it is for two reasons. Number one, culturally. The West celebrates autonomy and individualism. We're the experts on our own lives and the authority on everything that we need. And it's nobody's 
business to instruct us. This is kind of island culture, right? This is Cowichan to a degree. It's I work hard, I deserve to play hard and be the boss of my own life. Whatever time that I have to myself, I'm not gonna give that over for someone to instruct me what to do, right? It's I'm the boss, I've got my life under control. And so that word disobedience, it just doesn't sit well with the culture. But maybe for some of you, it's, it's deeply personal. Maybe there's been um, an event in your life or this language of obedience or disobedience or whatever has been used to manipulate you. Do as I say, don't ask questions. Maybe someone said that to you. And I've talked to many people who have a really hard time inviting Christ as Lord of their lives because there's a mistrust and skepticism towards authority. That's a really tough obstacle to overcome. And I would say that's a tragedy. That's really sad. And so when we study scripture, one of the things that we can't help, we can't avoid, is that we need to reframe our thoughts on obedience. And so it says up there, C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says, obedience, obedience is the road to freedom. Obedience is the road to freedom. Not your own ability to be the boss of your own life. Obedience under a loving God isn't bondage, it's freedom. He's the one who knows us best and loves us most. So God's commandments, they hold life and obedience that's the key. And so in the, in the same vein, as obedience brings freedom and life, disobedience towards our heavenly father, it holds deep loss. There's tragedy in it. When we choose our own way over God's instruction, we miss out on life. We miss out on connection with God, ultimate human flourishing the opportunity to help others truly grow into themselves. And that's a tragedy. And that's where we find Moses in this moment. Moses, he's been appointed by God as a leader, as we've read throughout the Exodus narrative. And the leader of the Israelites to to be a mediator between God and humanity. This isn't the first time that Moses had to navigate the tension between Uh, the murmuring and fighting and needs of the Israelites and God's direction and execution of his provision. The pressure of this moment, it highlights Moses' shadow side. We see Moses at his worst and, and it highlights his mistrust in God when the pressure's on. And so as a leader, there are two temptations that I feel like Moses really succumbs to in this moment. And maybe um, in your life as a ministry leader or as a boss or shift manager or whatever it is, a parent, maybe these temptations are familiar to you. Number one, it's the temptation to act in anger. And so the sight of the people who are gathered before this rock waiting in expectation for their leader to do something It's too much for Moses to handle. He buckles under the pressure. He loses it. He lashes out verbally and then whacks the rock twice 
with his staff. Before that, he says, listen, you rebels. He kind of cusses them out. Listen, you rebels. Must we bring the water out of this rock? He's posturing himself as Aaron as these providers for the Israelites, these reluctant providers and leaders. And that doesn't reflect God's heart towards his people. Number two, it's the temptation to be spectacular. Um, Henry Nouwen, the the Catholic um, spiritual director and priest in his book, In the Name of Jesus, he says the temptation to be spectacular is one of the primary temptations of the Christian leader. It's the temptation to be spectacular. I find this relevant in my own life. I don't know about you. There's so many times as a pastor when I can trick myself into thinking that, no, I think what the people need is for me to do something or or be spectacular. Even as I come to speak to you this morning, there's this temptation for me to entertain you, to bring out uh, all these cool props, like Simon does. Simon's so good with props. I don't have any props. So I I find this temptation to be spectacular so prevalent in my own life. Maybe it is for you. Jesus resisted this temptation so well when he refused to jump off the temple as Satan asked him to do. Or when he refused to call down a legion of angels or fire from heaven. Moses, in this moment, he finds himself succumbing to this temptation to be spectacular. And so he centers himself in the moment with his staff that's been bound to his reputation. And he ensures that optically, the Israelites' needs, they're going to be met by his hand and not God's to relieve some of that pressure off of himself. And so obedience to God It orients our lives. It postures us to live our lives consistently pointed towards him. That's what obedience does. Towards him and his nature, not ourselves. So Moses' disobedience, it it results in him angrily responding and, and desperately trying to save face as he feels like he's under pressure from the people. This is not the kind of mediator that God is asking Moses to be. This is not the kind of leader that Moses, or sorry, that God wants leading his people into the promised land. It's not the kind of leader that magnifies his holiness. So God punishes Moses and Aaron. This is what he says. Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. And as we get to this part in the text, you might think to yourself, oh my goodness, that is so heavy-handed of God. That Moses has been largely faithful up until this point, but in this moment of weakness, God comes down with a punishment like this. Oh, how heavy-handed is that? Yet in the economy of God, In God's kingdom, this defiance, it was was really significant. Moses' failure to obey God in the details meant he missed an opportunity to demonstrate God's power in a new way to the Israelites and to validate 
his own God-given leadership. And so we know, as we read the story of Scripture, that Moses ultimately came to dwell in the promised land. That uh, at Jesus' transfiguration, Moses was there present with God. But how sad is it? How tragic is it? That Moses missed an opportunity, a key opportunity, to be a part of what God was doing in his time. To do the assignment that God had given him in that moment. It reminds me so much of that story in which Jesus confronts who the gospels call the rich young ruler. This man who comes up to Jesus. He says, I want to follow you. Jesus looks at him and he loves him and asks him to give up his possessions, to leave behind his idols. Yet the rich young ruler, he can't do it. And it says that he, he walks away sad. It's a tragic story. We don't know how his story ends, but we know in that moment, it's a tragedy. So I want to ask you the question, what might be causing you to miss the assignment that God has for you? What might, be, what might be the blockage that's causing you or the obstacle that's causing you to miss the assignment that God might have for you right now? For some, maybe it's a lack of sensitivity to his leading. Maybe not enough time deep in prayer and connection with God. For some, maybe it is like an active disobedience. It's, there's somewhere in you that just thinks, I, th I think I know better than God with my life. Deep trust in God helps us avoid the tragedy of disobedience. I want to turn the page a little bit and talk about God's blessing despite our disobedience, especially in this story. There was a moment in which I experienced this. I was in downtown Vancouver walking with a friend. And it was one of those chilly winter days. It was in January. And we just grabbed a coffee. And we were walking and we were approaching a corner. On the corner, there was another coffee shop. And outside the coffee shop, there was a man who I had noticed had been asking people for money. And as we were approaching this man, it was so weird. It's like I just began to notice every single thing about him. I noticed um, what color his eyes were, his hands and, that were swollen and there were cuts on them. There, there was a hole in the side of his shoe. I began to notice all these things. But as I drew closer to this man, and I began to prepare myself for whatever he might ask me, um, I decided that I would just keep looking straight and I would keep walking. I don't know if you found yourself in a moment like that. So I just decided in that moment, I'm just going to keep going. I don't really want to get into this moment with this guy. And as we were passing him, my friend turns, he stops, and I, I kind of have to, you know, stop myself with him, and he says, hey, what's your name? And he says, can I buy you a sandwich? Maybe a coffee too? And the man says, yeah, of course, I'm hungry. And so he goes in there, 
and he buys the sandwich and the coffee. I'm waiting outside with this man who I was prepared to walk by. It's God's blessing despite my disobedience in that moment. It can be like, um, you know, a preacher who can get up on a Sunday without proper preparation or prayer. I'm not suggesting anything. But in that moment, God can still speak to an individual in the congregation despite this individual missing what God might have had for him, maybe a specific assignment or word. God can still speak. He's faithful in that way. It's the same with worship leading as well or any different leadership opportunity or moment. Despite our disobedience, God pours out his blessing on his people. And so in this story, we notice that God's blessing, it gushes out of the rock. Despite Moses' disobedience, water gushes out in abundance and the community and their livestock drank from this water. God made sure that water came out of that rock in abundance. No one was thirsty, not even the cows. Did God get the credit right then and there? We're not sure. The Israelites could have had another moment in which they missed God's provision and just attributed it to man's own effort. But God's blessing was poured out onto his people despite Moses' disobedience and even despite the Israelites' lack of trust. But isn't this the gospel? Isn't this the good news that we celebrate Sunday after Sunday? That although we consistently, we choose our own way, we choose our own thing over the Lord. His blessing is poured out. That despite our disobedience, God still sent his son to die on the cross for us. That's the good news. Jesus was God's ultimate blessing despite our disobedience. And we're going to get to that as we go on. Paul writes in Ephesians that God's grace is lavished upon us. It gushes out like water from the rock, quenching the thirsty despite our ignorance. And can you recall a time? Can you recall a time in which you experienced God's grace in spite of maybe your own lack of trust? Maybe there's been a moment in your life where you have really recognized that. Our God is so good. Lastly, I want to talk about how Jesus, and this is where we're going to land, is the perfect rock, water, and mediator. And so as we read through Numbers or really any part of the Old Testament, it's important for us to remind ourselves that the Bible, it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. And as we leaf through the pages of the Old Testament, we can find imagery foreshadowing, a trail of breadcrumbs, all leading to the Messiah, Emmanuel, 
God in the flesh, Jesus. And this story in Numbers 20, it's no exception. Jesus, he fulfills these three images from this text. Jesus is the perfect rock. Jesus is the perfect water. And Jesus is the perfect mediator between humanity and God. So first we're going to talk about how Jesus fulfills this image as the perfect rock. And so throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as rock. Five times in Deuteronomy 32, Moses refers to God as a rock. And so Jesus, he calls back to Psalm 118 when he refers to himself as the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. And so the apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament, we see for him, as an expert on the Old Testament, he's familiar with this imagery. So mentioning Israel's history as a warning, he mentions the rock. In 1 Corinthians 10.4, he says, they drank, the Israelites, from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. This rock, it's an image associated with safety, with consistency, with immovability. And when Paul calls Jesus the rock, he's drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is the same rock and source of safety and life that Israel encountered in the wilderness. The same rock. And so Jesus, at the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the rock. He says, those who are wise build their house on the rock. On Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The solid rock from which all life and blessings flow. We build our house upon him. Jesus is also the perfect water. In an encounter with the Samaritan woman, he refers to himself as living water from which no one will thirst. In John 7, 38, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then in John 19, when the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, when they struck Jesus' side, what flows out from him? It's blood and water separately. And so the narrative image of the water is something we see frequently throughout scripture. It's this physical image that depicts a metaphysical or spiritual reality. And so all the life that we see in our physical surroundings, which is nourished and made possible by water, is ultimately sourced by God, who orders and sustains all life. Jesus is saying, he is the one who sustains all life. Jesus is both the rock from which life flows and the water that brings life and nourishment to humanity. And finally, Jesus is the perfect mediator between humanity and God. Moses, who we've read about in the story, he served as one of God's most significant prophets and leaders 
during what is one of the most well-known, well-written-about periods in Israel's history. And so we read about Moses' death at the end of Deuteronomy, and it is stunning what's said about him. This is what it says. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. We can see the redemption here. This is at his death. Whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Moses, he was honored in this moment for the role that he played as leader and mediator between Israel and God. Yet, it wasn't the right mediator. There is only one right and perfect mediator between humanity and God, and it's Jesus. Jesus isn't the mediator who just told the people what was behind the veil. He tore the veil from the top down. Jesus is the perfect mediator because he is God, face to face with humanity, not just telling humanity what God is like, but showing, walking the same streets, eating the same food. Hebrews 4, it says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Jesus, he's the only mediator to lead us into the promised land, his kingdom in which his rule and reign will last an eternity. I love it. Uh, so I'm going to wrap up here in a minute. I'll invite Megan and the, the rest of the worship team up here. What we find in the story from Numbers 20 is a dichotomy. We're reminded how cold sin is. We're reminded how cold sin is. That tragedy, it's woven into living in disobedience towards God. That there's so much to miss. I think that's what I really want to say. There's just so much to miss when we insist on being the ruler of our own lives. Instead of submitting to his rule. On the flip side, there's so much warmth to be found in God's blessing poured out upon his people. We dig into this story knowing that Jesus, he has the final word, and that ultimate redemption is through him. My, my one application for you is this. Do an internal audit of your life. Like, really reflect on your life currently, in this moment. We can do that for a minute. Like, maybe you just want to close your eyes, or maybe you... Um, want to posture your body. Sometimes I just 
hold my palms up like this as a bodily posture of receiving what God might have for me in a moment. Whatever you feel comfortable with. I just want us to reflect on a few questions here. Do you trust God? Really, do you trust God? Or has a lack of trust, maybe a disconnect, caused you to to disobey his word for you and his instruction for you? Are you noticing God's blessing in your life? Are you perceiving it? Or do you find yourself missing it? Lastly, are you reflecting on the character of Jesus? Are you looking for him in all moments, seeking him out in your life? Are you experiencing him as a rock, a source of safety, or or water, a source of life? want to encourage us new life to run to Jesus he is in the business of doing immeasurably more than you can think or imagine in your life so as we head back into worship let's fix our hearts and our eyes on him